December is really a time of various traditions, right? We all have kind of our own traditions that we have at Christmas time. So what are some of your traditions at Christmas time? Shout them out. Cookies, man, first off the bat. It took me like five to get the cookies in the last service. What else? Christmas tree, Christmas wreath. Carols. Okay, thank you, Nate. That's our music director. Um, <laughs> manger scenes. Yeah, all kinds of fun things. I'm not looking for a particular answer. I'm just, I'm just asking. I know for me, like cook- cookies was like one of my number one too. I, you know, Christmas cookies. I've I've been doing really good, not eating any cookies. And then, uh, man, Leah started baking the Christmas cookies, and I quickly broke. And started eating all kinds of them because they're so good. And every year, she makes some of the best stuff. And I don't know, some of y'all probably do that same thing. Where you make like the same kind of cookie. Like every year, you, like, you have to make this kind of cookie. Like every year, Leah makes these like peanut butter balls with special K. And it's, it's nothing but sugar, but it's so good. Uh, I, you know, I just have to have one, at least one every, every year. Anyone like that? Have, have things like that in there? cooking repertoire. Okay, at least I'm seeing some nodding heads and I'm not feeling too gluttonous right now. That's good. Yeah, for, for some, we bake the same thing every, every year. Other times, we put the same decorations up every year or we enter into like a neighborhood Christmas-like competition. And if, if that's you, then more power to you. But for many, one of the traditions is that there's a particular Christmas movie you have to watch at least once in order for it to feel like Christmas. Now, it's amazing. It's, it's the same movie, and we've seen it over and over and over again, but we still feel that need to watch it again. And each time we do, we actually gain, we pick up something new from it. And so what's your Christmas movie? Oh, my goodness. I heard, like, yeah, like the men in unison, die hard. (laughs) Okay, it's a wonderful life, a Christmas carol. Thank you, traditionalists. The die hard people, I'm actually on your side, but uh, save that for the parking lot fight out afterwards, okay? Yeah, Christmas story. uh, You know, I heard last time I heard some of our our younger folks say Elf, because that's like the new classic. Yeah, I. When I grew up, I didn't really have a Christmas movie. Like, I didn't really have that at all until I got married. And then I was told that my Christmas movie would be always and forever White Christmas. And White Christmas is played in our house at least from one to nine times in December every year. Now, many of us are here tonight because of a family or a Christmas tradition, right? It doesn't really feel like Christmas until we gather to sing carols by candlelight and hear the good news of Jesus' birth. And it's the same story that we've heard over and over and over again. But we still feel that need to hear it, to, to be reminded of God's great love for us found in Jesus Christ. And it's kind of like that Christmas movie. We want to watch it over and over again, and each time we do, we pick up something new. Every time we we read through here, Luke chapter 2, we pick up a new perspective or a renewed appreciation or a newfound joy. And we don't even like just to hear 
Luke chapter 2. We want to see it. We want to watch our kids act it out in Christmas plays. And we want to see nativity sets on mantles and on lawns. Because after all, a picture is worth a thousand words. And really that's what we've been working towards in our, in our sanctuary. If you look around that direction, you'll see that we've started to fill our space with pictures that tell God's story of redemption from the pages of Scripture. And when, we're all, when it's all finished, we're going to have 14 pictures in here. Seven Old Testament and seven New Testament. And thus far, we've been walking through the Old Testament, but I really, I can't, I can't miss the opportunity. I can't pass up this opportunity to introduce the Christmas painting on Christmas Eve. I know it's not going in timeline order, that's okay. Tonight we're going to look at the nativity story painting. And there it is. There it is, right there. Now, it normally it's right there and after the service. I'll like put it up front and you can, you can kind of see some of the details there. Because in each of these paintings, there's one main story, but there's lots of little hidden details that connect to other stories throughout Scripture. And in this one, it's pretty clear to see that the main story is Luke chapter 2. It's the birth of our Lord. It's, it's all the parts that we just read, or many of the parts that we just read, right? Mary treasuring all these things in her heart. There's Joseph. He's standing to protect the child. And the shepherds are rushing to meet and worship their Savior. And of course, the babe, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's a simple scene that packs an incredible message. Christ the Savior is born. God became flesh and dwelt among us. God loved his people. He loved you so desperately that he was willing to leave heaven's throne room and take on the weakness of a newborn. And if you think about that, it boggles the mind. This is God. He's, he's the creator of all that ever was, is, and shall be. And yet he made himself vulnerable to the point that he needed his diaper changed. Philippians 2 says it really well when it says that Christ Jesus was in very nature God, but made himself nothing by being made in human likeness. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The message of Christmas, the, of the incarnation of Christ, is that God loved you so much that he was willing to come to obscurity and live in humility, and to die shamefully so that we would be forgiven and we would have life to the fullest in his kingdom. But this story that we hear every year, right, this account of Luke chapter 2, it doesn't start there. See, throughout the scriptures, there have been shadows, echoes, that have been pointing to this very moment. From Genesis on, God has been building up to this revelation. And if we listen to the story with Old Testament ears on, I think we'll have a new perspective on God's plan and his love. So we're going to go back in time tonight and see how Luke chapter 2 connects to some of these other narratives. Now first, in Luke chapter 2, we know that baby Jesus, not born in a normal room, right? There was no room in the inn. He was born in a stable. He's placed in a manger. 
He was surrounded by animals and put in a wooden box. And it harkens back to the story of Noah's Ark. Surrounded by animals, stuck in a wooden box. The Ark and the manger. Both are symbols of salvation. Both serve to hold and protect. Both are eventually left behind. God's Ark, or Noah's Ark, protected human life from God's wrath. The baby in the manger would also protect human life by taking God's wrath upon himself. And so there, in Luke chapter 2, lies a new ark on a sea of straw. The place of refuge now made the person of refuge. As Jesus would later say, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So we see Jesus in the story of Noah. And then second, as Christ is laid in the manger, we remember his purpose behind becoming incarnate in the first place. He came to be sacrificed. And tradition holds that, that shepherds, after receiving a, a newborn flock of sheep, what they would do is they would cull through that flock and they would pick out just the very best one, the purest one, the flawless one, the one that didn't have any spots or freckles on it, the one that was unblemished. And they would take that one and they would wrap it in cloth to protect it from all the, the dirt around and they would push that one in a manger separate from the rest so they could keep it pure, so they would become worthy, it would be worthy of being made an offering to the Lord. And so Jesus is placed in the manger and marked for sacrifice. And it reminds us of another sacrifice, of Abraham's account, where he was tested by the Lord and he placed his son, Isaac, on the altar of sacrifice. And of course we know that that God stopped Abraham and spared Isaac, providing a ram for sacrifice instead of the boy. But now, God is in Abraham's position. And he takes his son, Jesus, and places him on the altar of the cross to be sacrificed that we would all be spared. As we hear from John, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we, we see Jesus in Noah's account. We see Jesus in Abraham's account. And then third, and perhaps most notably, Jesus is not the first child to be laid into a makeshift cradle. There was another baby boy, born into poverty, whose mother who had run out of options. And that boy was Moses. And Moses and Jesus live nearly parallel lives. So as we listen to the story of Moses, Keep note of what some of the things that you're going to hear because we're going to go back through it with Jesus. And you're going to see some similarities here. See, Moses was born to a slave woman in the height of Egyptian persecution. It was so bad that the Egyptians, the soldiers, were limiting the Israelite population. And unless something was done, little baby Moses would be in grave danger. And so his mother weaved together a basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And a uh, fun, fun side note that the word... Uh, Basket, in, in this particular text, is the same Hebrew word for ark from Noah's ark. And it's the only time when that word is used, is in Noah's ark and in the basket that Moses is placed in. That's it. Anyway, fun side note. Anyway, Moses' mother places him in this, this river that's supposed to kill him if the soldiers had gotten their way. But she does this. She puts him into this river of death 
trusting that God is going to deliver Moses. That somehow Moses is going to go from this place of death to a new and better life. And baby Moses would grow up. And he left his home and he would grow up in this foreign place, in this foreign household, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, living in the house of his people's greatest oppressor. And later, Moses would stand opposed to Pharaoh, rebuking the slave drivers and teaching the people about the God who saves and redeems the lost. And through Moses, God would perform miracles in the form of plagues, would ultimately deliver his people from their slavery. Moses would bring them through the Red Sea and finally set them free, bringing them into the promised land. That's a lot about Moses. But it mirrors the life of Jesus. Because Jesus was born into poverty too. And he was placed in a makeshift cradle. And Jesus was in danger from the sword of Herod, who was doing the very same terrible thing that the Pharaoh had done. And so Jesus was ra- left his land and was raised in the foreign land of Egypt, just like Moses had. And Jesus left his heavenly home and came to this world. He lived in the house, in the world of, his great, of our greatest oppressor, Satan, and the sin that enslaves us. Like Moses, Jesus stood against that oppressor, rebuking the Pharisees, teaching the people about the God who saves and redeems the lost. Jesus would perform miracles too. Not plagues that caused destruction, but healing that brought restoration. Of course, chief of those miracles is Christ's resurrection from the dead. Years after Jesus was protected from Herod's soldiers, another set of soldiers would get their way and nailed him to the cross. Jesus bled and suffered and died out of love for his people. Of course, we know from Easter that death could not hold him, and Jesus rose back to life, having forgiven all sin and having broken death's chains. And so in his sacrifice, his death and his resurrection, Jesus set his people free from the power of the oppressor and brings us into the promised land of God's eternal kingdom. And so you see a lot of parallels here. But the question I'm sure you're wondering is, why in the world are we talking about this tonight? What does this have to do with Christmas Eve? Why are we talking about Noah and Moses and Isaac? It's Christmas Eve. It's Luke 2 time. Well, I bring up these these Old Testament characters because in Jesus Christ, we have one who is greater than them all. Jesus is the better Noah who doesn't escape from God's wrath but suffers all of it and takes the full punishment of sin upon himself. He's the person of refuge so that all who trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus is the better Isaac, the son who was not spared but given up for us all so that in Christ we might graciously receive all things, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of salvation, life after death, He's the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who takes away our sin. And he's the better Moses, who delivers us from more than just an earthly oppression, but delivers and redeems us from the power of sin and death and Satan, 
That's why scripture tells us that Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just like the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. See, all of these stories, these Old Testament echoes of protection and provision and redemption are all found here nestled in Luke chapter 2. And when we read that text in light of all that has come before it, we learn two things. First, we learn that all of Scripture is a unified story. It's all part of God's plan of salvation from the beginning of time. And then second, we learn that this Jesus, this babe wrapped in cloths of whom the angels sing and the star shines, is Christ the Lord. He's more than just a baby. He is God in the flesh who has come to save you and me from our sins. And he is the only way of salvation. You see, nothing outside of the ark would have saved Noah and his family. Nothing other than the ram would have been a suitable sacrifice in place of Isaac. No other path besides through the Red Sea would bring freedom to the slaves. And now we see that salvation is found in no one else besides Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That promise, that promise of salvation through Jesus Christ, that promise is for you. You see, later in his ministry, Jesus would teach a parable about the sheep and the goats. That there would be those who receive this gift of faith, who, who look to Jesus Christ as their hope and their joy. And there would be others who would reject him and look instead to earthly things for satisfaction. And my prayer for you and for your family members is that as you hear this good news of great joy that Jesus Christ is born, that you would know that he was born for you. And he died for you to forgive your sins. That he rose for you to give you eternal life. That he loves you and that nothing can separate you from that love. See, those earthly things, they, they can't, he can't satisfy them. So instead, look to him and find hope in him because he is your protection from the flood of this world's troubles. And he is your provision and your substitute. He is your rescue and your deliverance into freedom. Because today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Traditions are great. Love traditions. They help us connect to each other. They help us connect to the season itself. But this good news is more than just a tradition. And it's not just to be heard or proclaimed once a year at Christmas time. It's to be treasured in our hearts daily. And to be lived out in our decisions. And to be shouted from the rooftops. Jesus is born. And he brings salvation with him. And that salvation is for you. Let me pray with you. Lord God. There are so many parts of the Christmas celebration that we value and we cherish. In the 
midst of our traditions, let us not lose sight of you and the loving gift of your son, Jesus Christ, given for us, that we would be saved from our sin and brought into your kingdom. In Jesus' name.